0: The Age of Chivalry Chapter 4 from Bullfinch's The Age of Chivalry This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by B. G. Oxford The Age of Chivalry by Thomas Bullfinch Chapter 4 Arthur we shall begin our history of King Arthur by giving those particulars of his life which appear to rest on historical evidence, and then proceed to record those legends concerning him which form the earliest portion of British literature. Arthur was a prince of the tribe of Britons, called Siluris, whose country was South Wales, the son of Uther, named Pendragon, a title given to an elective sovereign, paramount over the many kings of Britain. He appears to have commenced his martial career about the year 500, and was raised to the Pendragonship about ten years later. He is said to have gained twelve victories over the Saxons. The most important of them was that of Baden, by some supposed to be Bath, by others Berkshire. This was the last of his battles with the Saxons and checked their progress so effectually that arthur experienced no more annoyance from them and reigned in peace until the revolt of his nephew modred twenty years later which led to the fatal battle of camlan in cornwall in five forty two modred was slain and arthur mortally wounded was conveyed by sea to glastonbury where he died and was buried tradition preserved the memory of the place of his interment within the abbey as we are told by Geraldus cambrensis who was present when the grave was opened by command of henry the second about eleven fifty and saw the bones and sword of the monarch and a leaden cross led into his tombstone with the inscription in rude roman letters here lies buried the famous king arthur in the island avalonia this story has been elegantly versified by wharton A popular traditional belief was long entertained among the Britons that Arthur was not dead, but had been carried off to be healed of his wounds in fairyland, and that he would reappear to avenge his countrymen and reinstate them in the sovereignty of Britain. In Wharton's Ode, a bard relates to King Henry the traditional story of Arthur's death, and closes with these lines, Yet in vain a pay foe armed with fate the mighty blow, for when he fell, the elfin queen, all in secret and unseen, O'er the fainting hero threw her mantle of ambrosial blue, And bade her spirits bear him far in Merlin's agate axled car To her green isles enameled steep, far in the navel of the deep, O'er his wounds she sprinkled dew from flowers that in Arabia grew. There he reigns a mighty king, thence to Britain shall return, if right prophetic rolls I learn, Born on victory's spreading plume, his ancient scepter to resume, his knightly table to restore, and brave the tournaments of yore. After this narration, another bard came forward, who recited a different story. When Arthur bowed his haughty crest, no princess veiled in azure vest, snatched him by merlin's powerful spell in groves of golden bliss to dwell but when he fell with winged speed his champions on a milk-white steed from the battle's hurricane bore him to joseph's towered fane in the fair vale of avalon there with chanted orizon and the long blaze of tapers clear the stolen fathers met the bier through the dim isles in order dread of martial woe the chief they led and deep entombed in holy ground before the altar's solemn bound footnote glastonbury abbey said to be founded by joseph of arimathea in a spot anciently called the island or valley of avalonia tennyson in his palace of art alludes to the legend of arthur's rescue by the fairy queen thus or mythic uther's deeply wounded son in some fair space of sloping greens lay dozing in the vale of Avalon, and watched by weeping queens End of footnote. it must not be concealed that the very existence of arthur has been denied by some milton says of him as to arthur more renowned in songs and romance than in true stories who he was and whether ever any such reigned in britain hath been doubted heretofore and may again with good reason modern critics however admit that there was a prince of this name and find proof of it in the frequent mention of him in the writings of the welsh bards but the arthur of romance according to mr owen a welsh scholar and antiquarian is a mythological person arthur he says is the great bear as the name literally implies arctos arcturus and perhaps this constellation being so near the pole, and visibly describing a circle in a small space, is the origin of the famous round table. King Arthur. Constance, king of Britain, had three sons, Moines, Ambrosius, otherwise called Uther, and Pendragon. Moines, soon after his accession to the crown, was vanquished by the Saxons. In consequence of the treachery of his seneschal, Vortigern, and growing unpopular through misfortune, he was killed by his subjects, and the traitor Vortigern chosen in his place. Vortigern was soon after defeated in a great battle by Uther and Pendragon, the surviving brothers of Moines, and Pendragon ascended the throne. This prince had great confidence in the wisdom of Merlin, and made him his chief advisor about this time a dreadful war arose between the saxons and britons merlin obliged the royal brothers to swear fidelity to each other but predicted that one of them must fall in the first battle the saxons were routed and pendragon being slain was succeeded by uther who now assumed in addition to his own name the appellation of pendragon merlin still continued a favorite counsellor At the request of Uther, he transported by magic art enormous stones from Ireland to form the sepulchre of Pendragon. These stones constitute the monument now called Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain. Merlin next proceeded to Carlisle to prepare the round table, at which he seated an assemblage of the great nobles of the country. The companions admitted to this high order were bound by oath to assist each other at the hazard of their own lives, to attempt singly the most perilous adventures, to lead, when necessary, a life of monastic solitude, to fly to arms at the first summons, and never to retire from battle till they had defeated the enemy, unless night intervened and separated the combatants. Soon after this institution, the king invited all his barons to the celebration of a great festival which he proposed holding annually at carlisle as the knights had obtained the sovereign's permission to bring their ladies along with them the beautiful Igerne accompanied her husband gorlois duke of Tintadel, to one of these anniversaries the king became deeply enamoured of the duchess and disclosed his passion but Iguerne repelled his advances and revealed his solicitations to her husband on hearing this the duke instantly removed from court with Igerne, and without taking leave of uther the king complained to his council of this want of duty and they decided that the duke should be summoned to court and if refractory should be treated as a rebel as he refused to obey the citation the king carried war into the estates of his vassal and besieged him in the strong castle of Tentado merlin transformed the king into the likeness of gorlois and enabled him to have many stolen interviews with Igerne. at length the duke was killed in battle and the king espoused Igerne. from this union sprang arthur who succeeded his father uther upon the throne arthur chosen king arthur though only fifteen years old at his father's death was elected king at a general meeting of the nobles it was not done without opposition for there were many ambitious competitors for while he lingered there a doubt that ever smouldered in the hearts of those great lords and barons of his realm flashed forth and into war for most of these made head against him crying who is he that he should rule us who hath proven him king uther's son for lo we look at him and find nor face nor bearing limbs nor voice are like to those of uther whom we knew coming of arthur but bishop bryce a person of great sanctity on christmas eve addressed the assembly and represented that it would well become them at that solemn season to put up their prayers for some token which should manifest the intentions of providence respecting their future sovereign this was done and with such success that the service was scarcely ended when a miraculous stone was discovered before the church door, and in the stone was firmly fixed a sword, with the following words engraven on its hilt, I am hight escalibore unto a king fair tresore. Bishop Bryce, after exhorting the assembly to offer up their thanksgiving for this signal miracle, proposed a law, that whoever should be able to draw out the sword from the stone should be acknowledged as sovereign of the britons and his proposal was decreed by general acclamation the tributary kings of uther and the most famous knights successively put their strength to the proof but the miraculous sword resisted all their efforts it stood till candlemas it stood till easter and till pentecost When the best knights in the kingdom usually assembled for the annual tournament. Arthur, who was at that time serving in the capacity of squire to his foster brother, Sir Kay, attended his master to the lists. Sir Kay fought with great valor and success, but had the misfortune to break his sword, and sent Arthur to his mother for a new one. Arthur hastened home, but did not find the lady, but having observed near the church a sword sticking in a stone, he galloped to the place, drew out the sword with great ease, and delivered it to his master. Sir Kay would willingly have assumed to himself the distinction conferred by the possession of the sword, but, when to confirm the doubters the sword was replaced in the stone, he was utterly unable to withdraw it, and it would yield a second time to no hand but Arthur's. Thus decisively pointed out by Heaven as their king, Arthur was, by general consent, proclaimed as such, and an early day appointed for his solemn coronation. Immediately after his election to the crown, Arthur found himself opposed by eleven kings and one duke, who with a vast army were actually encamped in the forest of Rockingham. By Merlin's advice, Arthur sent an embassy to Brittany to solicit the aid of King Ban and King Bohort, two of the best knights in the world. They accepted the call, and with a powerful army crossed the sea, landing at Portsmouth, where they were received with great rejoicing. The rebel kings were still superior in numbers, but Merlin, by a powerful enchantment, caused all their tents to fall down at once, and in the confusion Arthur, with his allies, fell upon them and totally routed them. After defeating the rebels, Arthur took the field against the Saxons, as they were too strong for him unaided he sent an embassy to armorica beseeching the assistance of hoel who soon after brought over an army to his aid the two kings joined their forces and sought the enemy whom they met and both sides prepared for a decisive engagement arthur himself as Geoffrey from monmouth relates dressed in a breastplate worthy of so great a king places on his head a golden helmet engraved with the semblance of a dragon over his shoulders he throws his shield called priwin on which a picture of the holy virgin constantly recalled her to his memory girt with caliburn a most excellent sword and fabricated in the isle of avalon he graces his right hand with the lance named ron this was a long and broad spear well contrived for slaughter after a severe conflict arthur calling on the name of the virgin rushes into the midst of his enemies and destroys multitudes of them with the formidable caliburn and puts the rest to flight hoel being detained by sickness took no part in this battle this is called the victory of mount baden and however disguised by fable It is regarded by historians as a real event. The feats performed by Arthur at the Battle of Baden Mount are thus celebrated in Drayton's verse. They sung how he himself at Baden bore that day, when at the glorious goal his British scepter lay. Two days together how the battle strongly stood. Pendragon's worthy son, who waited there in blood, three hundred Saxons slew with his own valiant hand. Song 4 guinevere merlin had planned for arthur a marriage with the daughter of king Laudegan of Carmelide. by his advice arthur paid a visit to the court of that sovereign attended only by merlin and by thirty-nine knights whom the magician had selected for that service on their arrival they found laudagan and his peers sitting in council endeavouring but with small prospect of success to devise means of resisting the impending attack of Rains, king of ireland who with fifteen tributary kings and an almost innumerable army had nearly surrounded the city merlin who acted as leader of the band of british knights announced them as strangers who came to offer the king their service in his wars but under the express condition that they should be at liberty to conceal their names and quality until they should think proper to divulge them these terms were thought very strange but were thankfully accepted and the strangers after taking the usual oath to the king retired to the lodging which merlin had prepared for them a few days after this the enemy regardless of a truce into which they had entered with king lodigan suddenly issued from their camp and made an attempt to surprise the city cleodales the king's general assembled the royal forces with all possible dispatch arthur and his companions also flew to arms and merlin appeared at their head bearing a standard on which was emblazoned a terrific dragon merlin advanced to the gate and commanded the porter to open it which the porter refused to do without the king's order merlin thereupon took up the gate with all its appurtenances of locks bars bolts etc and directed his troops to pass through after which he replaced it in perfect order then he set spurs to his horse and dashed at the head of his little troop into a body of two thousand pagans the disparity of numbers being so enormous merlin cast a spell upon the enemy so as to prevent their seeing the small number of their assailants notwithstanding which the british knights were hard pressed but the people of the city who saw from the walls this unequal contest were ashamed of leaving the small body of strangers to their fate so they opened the gate and sallied forth. The numbers were now more nearly equal, and Merlin revoked his spell, so that the two armies encountered on fair terms. Where Arthur, Ban, Bohort, and the rest fought, the king's army had the advantage, but in another part of the field the king himself was surrounded and carried off by the enemy. The sad sight was seen by Guinevere, the fair daughter of the king, who stood on the city wall and looked at the battle. She was in dreadful distress, tore her hair and swooned away. But Merlin, aware of what passed in every part of the field, suddenly collected his knights, led them out of the battle, intercepted the passage of the party who were carrying away the king, charged them with irresistible impetuosity, cut in pieces or dispersed the whole escort, and rescued the king. In the fight Arthur encountered Kaulang, a giant fifteen feet high, and the fair Guinevere, who had already begun to feel a strong interest in the handsome young stranger, trembled for the issue of the contest. But Arthur, dealing a dreadful blow on the shoulder of the monster, cut through his neck, so that his head hung over on one side, and in this condition his horse carried him about the field to the great horror and dismay of the pagans guinevere could not refrain from expressing aloud her wish that the gentle knight who dealt with giants so dexterously were destined to become her husband and the wish was echoed by her attendants the enemy soon turned their backs and fled with precipitation closely pursued by lodegan and his allies after the battle arthur was disarmed and conducted to the bath by the princess guinevere while his friends were attended by the other ladies of the court after the bath, the knights were conducted to a magnificent entertainment, at which they were diligently served by the same fair attendants. Lodigan, more and more anxious to know the name and quality of his generous deliverers, and occasionally forming a secret wish that the chief of his guests might be captivated by the charms of his daughter, appeared silent and pensive, and was scarcely roused from his reverie by the banters of his courtiers. Arthur, having had an opportunity of explaining to guinevere his great esteem for her merit was in the joy of his heart and was still further delighted by hearing from merlin the late exploits of gawain at london by means of which his immediate return to his dominions was rendered unnecessary and he was left at liberty to protract his stay at the court of lodigan every day contributed to increase the admiration of the whole court for the gallant strangers and the passion of guinevere for their chief and when at last merlin announced to the king that the object of the visit of the party was to procure a bride for their leader lodigan at once presented guinevere to arthur telling him that whatever might be his rank his merit was sufficient to entitle him to the possession of the heiress of carmelide and could he find a woman in her womanhood as great as he was in his manhood the twain together might change the world guinevere arthur accepted the lady with the utmost gratitude and merlin then proceeded to satisfy the king of the rank of his son-in-law upon which lodegon with all his barons hastened to do homage to their lawful sovereign the successor of uther pendragon the fair guinevere was then solemnly betrothed to arthur and a magnificent festival was proclaimed which lasted for seven days at the end of that time the enemy appearing again with renewed force it became necessary to resume military operations footnote guinevere the name of arthur's queen also written guinevra and genoura is familiar to all who are conversant with the chivalric lore it is to her adventures and those of her true knight sir launcelot that Dante alludes in the beautiful episode of Francisca de Rimini. End of footnote. We must now relate what took place at and near London, while Arthur was absent from his capital. At this very time a band of young heroes were on their way to Arthur's court, for the purpose of receiving knighthood from him. They were Gawain and his three brothers, nephews of Arthur, sons of King Lot, and Galaquin, another nephew, son of king nanters king lot had been one of the rebel chiefs whom arthur had defeated but he now hoped by means of the young men to be reconciled to his brother-in-law he equipped his sons and his nephew with the utmost magnificence giving them a splendid retinue of young men sons of earls and barons all mounted on the best horses with complete suits of choice armor They numbered in all seven hundred, but only nine had yet received the order of knighthood. The rest were candidates for that honor, and anxious to earn it by an early encounter with the enemy. Gawain, the leader, was a knight of wonderful strength, but what was most remarkable about him was that his strength was greater at certain hours of the day than at others. From nine o'clock till noon his strength was doubled, and so it was from three to evensong for the rest of the time it was less remarkable though at all times surpassing that of ordinary men after a march of three days they arrived in the vicinity of london where they expected to find arthur and his court and very unexpectedly fell in with a large convoy belonging to the enemy consisting of numerous carts and wagons all loaded with provisions and escorted by three thousand men who had been collecting spoil from all the country round a single charge from Gawain's impetuous cavalry was sufficient to disperse the escort and recover the convoy which was instantly dispatched to london but before long a body of seven thousand fresh soldiers advanced to the attack of the five princes and their little army Gawain, singling out a chief named caos of gigantic size began the battle by splitting him from the crown of the head to the breast. Galakin encountered King Sanagran, who was also very huge, and cut off his head. Agravain and Gaharit also performed prodigies of valor. Thus they kept the great army of assailants at bay, though hard pressed, till of a sudden they perceived a strong body of the citizens advancing from London, where the convoy which had been recovered by Gawain had arrived, and informed the mayor and citizens of the danger of their deliverer. The arrival of the Londoners soon decided the contest. The enemy fled in all directions, and Gawain and his friends, escorted by the grateful citizens, entered London and were received with acclamations. End of chapter four. Recording by B. G. Oxford. Augsburg, January, two thousand nine.